In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. St. John writes in his first epistle, We love him because he first loved us. From this we learn that before we can love God, we must know his love for us. This basic and important truth will be the main topic that we consider this evening. We love him because he first loved us. You cannot love God until you know his love for you. St. John continues, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. From this we learn that we cannot love God if we do not love one another. It is exactly what Jesus says in our gospel lesson we just heard. The second is like it. What a profound thing to say, though very easy to overlook. The second is like it. The command that God gives to us, his creatures, to love him who made us, is like the command he gives to love our neighbor, who in many cases gives us nothing in return. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. This means that he will not sit idly by while we love anything more than we love him. All our honor and praise and trust and reliance and affection and devotion belong to him. We owe it to him. It is his by right. He demands this right. He made us. He provides everything to us. Everything. Everything. He created us to enjoy fellowship with our creator. We do so by knowing him and loving him. All pleasures he gives us are given in pure love for us. He is jealous. And if we can stretch the meaning of the word to exclude any sort of selfishness or sin, he is greedy for what belongs to him. Stingy. He won't share us with another. We belong to him. That's what jealous means. He is jealous for our love. He won't share us. We owe him and him alone our love above all things with all our heart, soul, and mind. He takes his right to expect it and to receive it very seriously and personally. You shall love the Lord your God. And Jesus tells us that the command to love one another is like this command. This is truly remarkable. The similarity is not merely in the word love. I love my children. I love tacos. The similarity here, the likeness of these two loves, is found only in the word itself, even though the words are used so very differently. But when Jesus says that the second is like the first, he is saying that God is just as jealous for our neighbor's sake as he is for his own sake. He takes the command to love our neighbor just as seriously and just as personally it is not possible to love God if we refuse to love our neighbor. 
The likeness of each love we owe is a likeness of kind, not magnitude. We are commanded to love God above all things. We are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. These loves cannot compete. If they compete with each other, then neither one is love. God who will not share the love we owe him with another God, however, is the God who gave Adam a wife, a fertile wife, so that he could share with her and all their children the same love that they all had for their maker. He who will not share provides for us to share and commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. I love my children. I love my wife. If I do not love my children, then I lie when I say to their mother that I love her. If I do not love my wife, I lie when I say to her children that I love them. These loves cannot compete. If they compete, neither love is love. The second is like it, Jesus says. And by binding these two loves together, he makes love even more damning and judgmental of our utter failures than if either command had stood alone. The second is like it, Jesus says. Jesus wants these words to stick in our minds. He wants us to see our neighbor always as one whom God has loved, as one for whom Jesus died. I cannot love God without knowing first his love for me. That's how we began this evening. I cannot know his love for me without seeing him die on the cross for me. I cannot see him die on the cross for me without seeing him die on the cross for my neighbor. I cannot see Jesus die on the cross for the whole world without seeing him wash the sins of my brothers and sisters away. It's impossible. The second is like it. Love thy God who gave his son. Love thy God who shed his blood. Love thy neighbor whom God loved also even unto death upon the cross. He did not save you without saving your neighbor. And you can't love him without loving your neighbor. Not long ago, we heard how a lawyer put Jesus to the test by asking him what he had to do to inherit eternal life. That was about a month ago. Jesus responded by asking him what his reading of the law was. And he answered Jesus correctly. His answer was pretty much the same as the answer we just heard Jesus give the lawyer in today's gospel lesson. Love thy God. Love thy neighbor. Jesus told him that if he does this, he will live. Well, the lawyer got smart. He didn't think he had lost yet. He asked Jesus who his neighbor was. And this provided Jesus a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate what he says today. That the command to love your neighbor is like the command to love God. You remember the parable. He does so not by describing merely the love he ought to show, but the love he needed. It's a wonderful parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's brilliant. Who is my neighbor? Whom do I have to love? And Jesus turns the question on him. Who is the neighbor you would like to have? And who is 
Who is the neighbor you'd like to have? The one who has mercy, that's who. That's the neighbor you need. That's the neighbor who loves you. If you want to know who your neighbor is and how to love him, you must first see how God has loved you. You must first see how God is the neighbor you need. Go and do likewise, Jesus says. Love as God loves, Jesus says. If you will seek your inheritance from the law, then this is all the law will tell you. Love as God has loved. But we won't now rehash what we considered last month. The events in our lesson today turned out a little differently, didn't they? The lawyers, the lawyer tests Jesus with a tricky question, which is the great commandment in the law? And by this, he intends to trap Jesus into picking one of hundreds and getting all tangled into some ethical debate. And they'll do that to you. I recently got in an argument, um, revealing my patheticness, on some news site, I commented as the pseudonym, arguing with somebody about whether the Bible's unethical for permitting slavery and all that stuff. Oh, they're just darbies. They're just trying to bring you in, and this is what they were doing to Jesus. This is what legalists do. They reduce God's law to a long list of rules and policies so that they can look for loopholes and get out of actually having to bother loving anyone but themselves. And they're not interested in love. They have to remove love, true love, from the commandments in order for the commandments to be a means for them to gain a good conscience and gain righteousness and gain admittance into heaven. They have to remove love from the commandments and reduce it down to ethics, to rules and policy. They want to be able to say that they did what they had to do and what others should do, but they don't want actually to love. If Jesus had picked one of their man-made rules, or even if he had uh, picked one of God's many commandments, they would have had ample opportunity to suck him into a fruitless debate. Or maybe they wanted Jesus to, over, to just throw his hands up in the air and say, well, gosh, I think they're all really important. And in that case, they would have forced Jesus to acknowledge them as the experts who should be listened to and learned from. Jesus had to answer. He couldn't bend down and quietly write in the sand this time. He had to answer but Jesus saw through their craftiness, and he answered wisely. He answered correctly. The greatest commandment is itself the fulfillment of the whole law. It is love. Jesus gives not one but two commandments and presents them as the single greatest, and he binds them together. He summarizes the law as God himself does in Deuteronomy 6 and in Leviticus 19. He lists the first table of the law, which consists of commandments 1 through 3. And he lists the second table of the law, which consists of commandments 4 through 10. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, Jesus said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And that's it. Jesus bested them. He silenced them. 
Remember when Jesus said to the lawyer, do this and you will live? And the lawyer shot back with a snotty question about who is my neighbor? Well, this time, nothing. Jesus just won. It's almost a downer. You expect more. This has happened to me. Not just online. I'm sure it's happened to you. You disagree with someone. You're upset with some dumb opinion or bad plan or careless comment someone made. You imagine what you're going to say once you build up the courage or find the opportunity to address it. You work through scenarios in your mind. You fill in what the other is likely to say, and you come up with the perfect responses. And then you confront the person, ready for a fight, ready to say all that needs to be said, ready to win. And then you're met with perfect, peaceful, humble, and unequivocal concession. You're right. Sorry. I agree. Thanks for telling me. You're right. Boy, what a deflating feeling. You're ready for a fight. You wanted to win. You knew how. But you wanted, you wanted more fight to increase the victory. Well, Jesus was not hoping like this. But as we read the account, we see a certain anticlimactic ending to that scene. And we see a certain dissatisfaction in our Lord. Jesus just bests them. And they don't argue back. They tested him. Jesus passed the test, silenced them, just as he silenced the Sadducees right before that. And then they just stop. But he isn't done. See, Jesus is not satisfied with besting anyone. He did not come down from heaven in order to prove the world wrong and put everyone under his feet and win and get sick of winning. No, he came to save. He's simply not satisfied with their white flag retreat and he's not satisfied with yours. Even if it looks an awful lot like obedience, he's not satisfied with winning the argument or proving us wrong. He wants to win our hearts and our minds and our souls and make us right with him by teaching us love by subduing us with his kindness, by teaching us to love, by teaching us to know love. We know the anticlimactic feeling of deflated victory when you're all pumped up. We know it because we have unsatisfied pride. But Jesus knew the anticlimactic feeling of a deflated victory because, because he has love that is never satisfied that is never done pouring out, never done trying to win. He is love. He has love that was unnoticed and undesired. And he wants even his enemies to see it. He said that all the law and the prophets depend on this command to love God and neighbor. And while once a lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Here no one asks him how it is that one, that on these commands hang all the law and the prophets. They don't care. They just know that Jesus slapped them down. Jesus wants them to care. And Jesus wants you to care. And he doesn't want to slap you down. He doesn't want us to ask impetuously, of course, testing him, bickering, and contradicting him. But he wants us to care. And he wants us to ask. He 
He wants us to investigate and say to him, how are these things so? He wants us to seek more than just submitting to Jesus' superior argumentation. He wants us to wrestle with his words like Jacob with the angel. He wants us to seek understanding. We know that the victory Jesus won in this test was bound to be short-lived. They were already beginning to plot how they may destroy him. He who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. So Jesus pursues them. He chases after them as much as asks them, Hey, wait. You know how I said that on these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, hang all the law and the prophets, are you not at all curious how this is so? Was it enough that I silenced you? Did you have nothing more to say? Could you at least try a little harder? Well, I would like to explain to you how this is so. In order to do this, I will now put you to the test. The Christ. Whose son is he? Jesus just picked a fight. It's wonderful. He picked a fight with people who were satisfied with worldly peace. And we know this worldly peace. We know how not to press it in our relationships with one another. And then we imagine that that's how we love one another, when we just let it go. And often that most certainly is the case. But that is not ever the case when it comes to God. We are not to just say, well, God's God, that's the rule. He's got policies. This church practice is closed communion. Right? That's your practice. That's your policy, is the word. That's your rule. I'll submit to it. This church doesn't ordain women. I don't know why. It makes no sense. It makes us a little weird. I don't talk about it with my friends, but that's the policy. That's the policy. Real presence in the Lord's Supper. Baptismal regeneration. Etc. Etc. Policy. Policy. I'm not going to argue with God. God wants you to argue with him. He wants you to press it. He wants you to know how in the world he won this debate by saying that all the law and the prophets depend on love toward God and love toward neighbor. And he shows us the synthesis by asking them who the Christ is. He is both God and our neighbor. Whose son is he, he asks. The son of David. How then does David call this, in, in the spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Are you able to answer this question? Do you dare to question him anymore? Dear brothers and sisters, you must. If you seek love in the law and are satisfied simply with what God has said, those are rules, this is the policy, God tells us to do this, this is the practice at this church, then you will see everything, every expression of God's love is an imposition upon you that cramps you, that hurts you. But God's commandments are for your good. And so God presses them. He insists on them. He doesn't bend on them until you see it. 
And you can only see it until, or when, in repentance, you acknowledge that you have fallen short of the law and the love there revealed, and look for the love of God revealed elsewhere. Where the Son of David, the Son of God, is born in order to make himself much lower than the angels, to bear our sin on the cross for all of our sins, to turn away God's wrath by fulfilling this perfect love toward God and toward neighbor, 100% fully from his heart, soul, and mind for you, and to be raised up on the altar of the cross in order to bear it and reconcile your maker to you so that you might know him and so that you might know that he loves you and so that you might live a life being reconciled to God, knowing how to pursue reconciliation with one another and fulfill the law against which the, the love of God against which there is no law because you see freedom in knowing that your sins are forgiven. He says, sit at my right hand. He says that to the one who is crucified. I make your enemies your footstool. Now you will win. Now you will win. But he doesn't win with you until he has won you, until he has borne all of your sins and given you confidence before him to seek understanding. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which does what it's told by bit and bridle. No, be a child of God. Be one who is not willing to simply let Jesus win the argument, press him. Why is this so? Why do we teach this doctrine in church? Why are we different from the world? Don't submit to anything you hear in church as to a regulation or a policy. Pursue wisdom. Pursue understanding. And then you will have more than all your teachers, for you will be meditating on the, on the testimonies of your God. As we pray in Psalm 119, give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, then I will observe it with my whole heart. And what will you be observing? By observing love fulfilled for you, by receiving love given to you, you will fulfill here in time imperfectly and hereafter in heaven with utter holiness the love which God commands in his law, the love which Jesus fulfilled on the cross, the love which he shows to you in the preaching of the gospel. So hold it sacred, and so you will love God with all your heart. Hold it sacred, and you will seek reconciliation with those who annoy you, with those whom you have grudges against, with those who continue to annoy you, even after they're forgiven seven times, times seven. You will find yourself seeking the, the good of your neighbor, just as God has sought your good, and you will find yourself at peace with God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please rise. And this peace of God which surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.